Today we're going to look at the issues raised by the use of metaphor in art criticism. And I choose this topic uh, as an example of the way in which considerations about metaphor have been used in areas outside of linguistics and of the philosophy of language in order to shed light on otherwise rather confusing phenomena. So metaphor considerations about metaphor have been used in order to shed light on questions in metaphysics. Uh, Stephen Yablo's paper that I cited uh, in the handout last week is a good example of that. So too in the philosophy of religion, philosophers of religion tell me that metaphor is used, considerations about metaphor are used there to shed light on certain uh, theological questions. And in science, as we saw last week, uh, considerations about metaphor are used to indicate something about, or to argue for certain views of what's involved in reasoning scientifically in certain contexts. So you could say a great deal about the ways in which views on metaphor, considerations about metaphor, have been applied elsewhere in fields in which metaphor is very frequently used to talk about or communicate things about uh, or otherwise serve some function in discussions of a certain subject matter. And this is also true in aesthetics. And aestheticians not only consider questions about metaphor in its own right, but they consider and have frequently done so in the last few decades. They also consider questions about what the use of metaphor in our descriptions of artworks and in critics' descriptions of artworks indicates about the nature of criticism, the nature of aesthetic experience, uh, and the nature of aesthetic properties, such as beauty. I say in the last few decades, uh, however, there's a passage in Kant uh, in uh, the Critique of Judgment in which he also observes that we frequently describe uh, things in metaphorical terms when we are describing their aesthetic character. So he says we frequently describe planes uh, as laughing and joyful, use these emotion terms applied to nature when we are describing their aesthetic character. And Kant's view is that the significance of this uh, is that it provides support for his view that we experience the beautiful as a symbol of the morally good. So we, we apply ethically charged terms to beautiful things and that Kant provides in support of this view about how we experience beauty. But it is uh, particularly taken off in the last few decades in aesthetics. And there are two sources of interest for aestheticians in the use of metaphor to describe works of art or nature. One source is the interest that aestheticians have in artistic expression. So it's long been regarded as a particularly important feature of works of art that they can express emotions. A good account of artistic value, it's often thought, will have to make reference to the fact that artworks express emotions. 
and express many other things besides. It's often thought that this has something to do with, for example, the value of music, non-representational works of art. Their value can be explained, so the thought goes, in terms of their capacity for expressing certain things, even if they don't represent those things in the way that, for example, pictures do. And a second source is the interest that philosophers have taken, analytic philosophers, uh, since the late 50s or so, in what are called uh, aesthetic terms or aesthetic descriptions. Uh, this stems from the work of Frank Sibley. And uh, I'll get to what Sibley says about aesthetic descriptions in a moment, but it's often observed that these descriptions as well are frequently metaphorical and many have attempted to draw out the significance of that. But to begin with artistic expression, one reason why people think that learning about metaphor is going to shed light on uh, the nature of artistic expression is that is the claim or the assumption that normally at least when we describe the aesthetic, the expressive character of a work of art, we use metaphor to do so. So, various plain old examples. We say the music is sad, uh, it is joyous, the painting is tense, when we're describing a painting's expressive character. Uh, the colonnade is serene. These sorts of things come most naturally to mind when we're trying to express or trying to convey a work's expressive character, what it expresses. And a lot of people have thought, well, if we have an account of metaphor, then we can shed light on what it is for a work of art to express these things, or alternatively, what it is for us to experience a work of art as expressive. Uh, you can find this, for example, in Nelson Goodman's account of expression in his extremely influential book, Languages of Art, in which Goodman brings to bear various considerations about metaphor uh, in order to elucidate the concept of artistic expression. And a number of people have taken this strategy with different results uh, from Goodman's coming to different conclusions. Very recently, uh, Christopher Peacock has done so in a series of articles on expression in music. Uh, just start, starting in 2009, he's published a few articles in the British Journal of Aesthetics on this. And Peacock draws on the thought, which, as we saw, was mentioned in Davidson's famous paper on metaphor, that metaphor is connected to this phenomenon of perceiving as. So this, <clears throat> you'll recall, is familiar from Wittgenstein's discussion of the ambiguous duck-rabbit head, which can be seen as a picture of a duck's head or as a picture of a rabbit's head. And Davidson, among many others, has thought that metaphors either have this effect on an audience, they make us see one thing as another, so they make us see Juliet as the sun, for example, or uh, they, as some claim, are the product of an experience of seeing one thing as another. So a metaphor user has had such an experience and expresses it in 
describing, in, describing someone metaphorically, or something metaphorically. And Peacock uh, bases his account of what it is to experience music as expressive on considerations like this. Uh, and so he suggests that there is such a thing, well, that we have to distinguish between types of perceiving as experiences. So he thinks quite generally it's possible, quite apart from context about expression in the arts, to, as he puts it, perceive one thing metaphorically as another. This is not the same as, for example, seeing a cat as a cat, when you recognize it as a cat and it looks like a cat to you, or indeed mistaking a cat for a raccoon in bad lighting. So when you see the cat as a raccoon, it looks to you as if there's a raccoon before you. So that type of perceiving one thing as something is not what he is concerned with. That's the kind of ordinary type. He's concerned with cases that he illustrates by the example of seeing a vase as a person. So he thinks, and he gives a uh, painting uh, by Zubarin, uh, that he says many people have seen this line of vases, of pots in this painting, as persons, some fat, some thin. Uh, we humanize what we're looking at in those sorts of ways. It's not his term for it, uh, but that's the kind of thing he has in mind. This is very different from the other kind of perceiving as, where we mistake a cat for a raccoon or see the cat as a cat in the good lighting. It does not look to us as if there are persons in front of us when we see the vase as a person. Nor, again, is it experienced as a depiction of a person. So you might and people often do, talk about seeing a drawing as a depiction of, say, the Hudson River. In discussions of Wittgenstein's diagram, people often talk about seeing the drawing as a rabbit. That sort of thing is not going on either. We don't experience the vase as a depiction, or indeed a sculpture, for that matter, of a person. Nor again, says Peacock, is this a case of seeing something and imagining of it that it is something else. So it's not just that you see the pots in front of you and imagine of them that they are people. So you could do that with any number of things that you don't see as people. This is a very distinctive type of experience that he wants to isolate from related similar phenomena. He, and he describes this as perceiving one thing metaphorically as another. And in Peacock's view, this is what's going on when we hear music as expressive. So, as he puts it, to hear music as expressive, say, of sadness, exuberance, or immensity, is to hear some feature of it metaphorically as sad, exuberant, immense, and so forth. For example... It's often noted in the discussions of 
expression in music, it's very striking that a single chord can often be heard as sad. A minor chord, most notably, can be experienced as sad. And this is, what makes the, this is part of what makes the problem of expression uh, a difficult one, is that even extremely simple units of music can be heard in this way. So Peacock thinks that in the case of hearing a minor chord as sad, what's going on is that we're perceiving the relation of it to its perhaps unheard major chord metaphorically as an instance of the relation that sadness, a subdued emotion, bears to a non-subdued, non-sad emotion. So the feature of the chord that we're hearing metaphorically as uh, sad is the relation it bears to the major chord. We're hearing that as an instance of the relation that sadness bears to non-sad, non-subdued emotions. Peacock is drawing here on the thought, too, that metaphor can itself enter into the content of our experience. And this is a claim that's very frequently made. The thought that metaphors are not, or not exclusively, linguistic phenomena, but in some cases, perceptual phenomena. Or indeed, that metaphors uh, enter into our experience at the level of thought. Uh, now, I'm not going to say a whole lot about Peacock's view. Uh, there's a symposium on his views in the issue of the British Journal of Aesthetics in which that first paper cited on your handout uh, appears. Contributions by Paul Snowden, Malcolm Budd, uh, Peter Kivy, and others. Uh, so if you're interested in looking at his views further, that's a place to look. Uh, a worry frequently, though, in contexts in which perceiving as is appealed to in order to elucidate metaphor, is that the phenomenon that's being talked about is actually just as mysterious as the phenomenon that it's being invoked to explain. So the worry often is that you're just giving a label to the problem. Uh, not actually making it more intelligible or explaining it. Now, whether Peacock's view is subject to that worry, uh, I'm not saying here. Uh, but this move is not unknown, is what I am saying. And that is one concern that you have to allay if you're going to make it, that the thing appealed to may well be just as mysterious as the thing you're trying to explain. So that's one example of how metaphor has been invoked to shed light on artistic expression. And as I say, there have been a number of others. Uh, but a great deal of work in aesthetics on metaphor stems from interest, quite generally, in what are called aesthetic descriptions. In an extremely influential paper, uh, published originally in the late 50s, Frank Sibley argued that there is a difference between two categories of term or description uh, or use of terms, use of descriptions. And he marked this distinction by calling some of them aesthetic terms and some of them non-aesthetic terms. 
So aesthetic terms or descriptions include such things as describing something as unified or balanced, integrated, lifeless, serene, somber, dynamic. We could add beautiful, graceful, elegant, etc. Non-aesthetic terms, to use some of Sibley's examples, include such things as red, noisy, square, has five acts, these kinds of descriptions. Now, many people have thought that intuitively there is some difference between these categories, that the first set belongs together, and are quite it's quite obvious that they're quite relevant to criticism and evaluation of works of art, to appreciation of it, so forth, and that the others uh, are somehow different. Red, noisy, square, having five acts uh, are different. Sibley's account of the difference is that in order, as he puts it, to apply terms from the first category correctly, you need to exercise taste or discrimination or appreciation. Whereas that is not necessary in order to apply terms from the second category, non-aesthetic terms, correctly. Now, you could say the basis of the distinction is of another kind. Some have wanted to, some have seen in Sibley's discussion evidence for a whole multitude of what have become called aesthetic properties. And some see part of the significance of Sibley's paper as vastly expanding the range of uh, phenomena that aesthetics can study. So if you consider the 18th century, sort of dawn of modern aesthetics, the properties they focused on almost exclusively were beauty, ugliness, and sublimity. Three aesthetic properties. But if Sibley's right, there's far, far more aesthetic properties than that. There's elegance, there's grace, there's dynamism, being balanced, all these sorts of properties, apart from beauty, ugliness, and sublimity, that are part of the potential subject, subject matter of aesthetics. And this is related to distinction known, from, known in ethics as the distinction between thin ethical descriptions and thick ethical descriptions, if you're familiar with that. So it's related to that sort of uh, way of categorizing things. So a lot of issues arose from Sibley's paper, and he made a lot of other claims in it than those I'm going to discuss. But one claim he made in the course of it is this. So he said it's quite striking that when we use terms as aesthetic terms, very frequently we are speaking metaphorically. And again, to use his examples, we might describe a passage of music as chattering, carbonated, or gritty, a, painting, a painter's coloring as vitreous, farinaceous, or effervescent, or a writer's style as glutinous or abrasive. Very good ones. He apparently went through book after book of art criticism, extracting 
uh, actual descriptions that critics tended to use in describing works of art in order to get uh, real-life examples here. So, among these special categories of descriptions, great many are metaphorical. And one person who has argued uh, a great many theses in connection with this particular observation about aesthetic descriptions uh, is Roger Scruton. So Scruton, uh, first of all, well, Scruton has made a number of claims about this. One claim that he wants to argue for is that aesthetic descriptions or aesthetic terms do not attribute properties to objects. So Scruton agrees with Kant and Hume that beauty is not a property that objects have in themselves, as Hume put it. Neither are any of the other alleged properties that Sibley's discussion has seemed to many to have uncovered. So Scruton wants to defend a kind of anti-realist view of aesthetic properties, that there are no such things, that these terms don't function to attribute properties, but have a different function. And I kind of, well, I'll, I'll get to what he says about that in a minute. But they are expressive of certain kinds of experiences, which are not experiences of perceiving that a thing has properties that they attribute. Part of his argument for this is based on considerations about metaphor. So Scruton says, I don't know if Sibley ever says this, but Scruton claims that if you think about it, most aesthetic descriptions are metaphorical. That literal aesthetic descriptions, like beautiful, graceful, elegant, are actually in the minority. And if this is right, says Scruton, then we should take a look at metaphorical aesthetic terms in order to get some insight into these so-called aesthetic properties. And this is going to be bad for the person who thinks that they attribute properties to objects because Scruton argues that metaphors do not attribute properties to objects. So Scruton, I don't think, was influenced by Davidson, but his view of metaphor is basically Davidson's view of metaphor. And he, his argument goes as follows. So, clearly, when we describe, say, music as sad, we are not attributing literal sadness to the music. So, sadness, the property that a sad person has. The mood that they're in. We're not attributing that to the music. But, says Scruton, we can't be attributing any other property to it either. And that is for simple reason. If, he says, we were attributing some other property, then the word sad, as it occurs in the music is sad, would have a different sense 
than it has when applied to people. But words don't acquire a new sense when they're used metaphorically. Beardsley and others who have argued that are wrong. Davidson is right. The word sad has the very same sense when used metaphorically as it does when used literally to describe people. So we're using it in the same sense, but we're not using it clearly to attribute the property of sadness to the music, and we can't be using it to attribute any other property because it doesn't have a new sense, which is what it would, one of the things it would take in order to be attributing some other property. Uh, therefore, we're attributing no property at all when we call the music sad. We have to find some other account of the function of metaphorical so-called descriptions of music and of artworks generally. Now this naturally raises the question, okay, well even if that does show that we're not attributing aesthetic properties when we use metaphorical aesthetic descriptions, what about all the literal aesthetic descriptions? What about beautiful, elegant, graceful? Uh, and I don't recall Scruton being very clear about this, uh, but what seems to be implicit in his view here uh, is that if you make the case for the metaphorical aesthetic descriptions, it becomes all the more plausible for the literal ones, that they have a similar kind of function as the metaphorical aesthetic descriptions do. Uh, and I'll get to his account of what that function is in a moment. Uh, but first of all, I think it's worth saying that this argument doesn't work uh, to show that metaphorical aesthetic terms don't attribute properties, or indeed that metaphors don't attribute properties. Um, and in that paper, Metaphor and Criticism, uh, that I self-servingly have cited on the handout, uh, it's going to be published later this year. One of the things I argue uh, about this argument is that one of the premises is just false. Namely, the premise that if we are attributing a different property with the metaphor, then the word sad would have a different sense. That's not the case, because it's possible for a speaker to attribute properties to objects by using the same word in the same sense as they would be if they were speaking uh, so as to attribute some other property. Concrete example is sarcasm. So when you describe someone sarcastically as friendly, you are using the word friendly in the very same sense as you are when you are speaking non-sarcastically. That's part of where sarcasm gets its punch. But you're, you are clearly attributing unfriendliness to them by sarcastically describing them as friendly. But that's not because the sense of the word friendly has a different sense, or has changed when you use it sarcastically. It doesn't commit us to saying that one meaning of the word friendly is unfriendly, on the grounds that you could use friendly sarcastically. Quite clearly, this would require us to say that one meaning of almost any word is its opposite. 
because at least any word that can be used sarcastically. And you might think back as well to the account I gave last week of conversational implicature from Grice, writer of the letter of reference who says Mr. X has an excellent command of English and his attendance at tutorials has been regular, communicates that Mr. X is a bad philosopher, attributes the property of being a bad philosopher to Mr. X. But nothing that he says, none of the words he uses, change their sense. He attributes properties by other means than by using words in a different sense. So I think this argument is demonstrably unsound, basically. But that's his argument for his negative conclusion. Uh, and his positive conclusion is motivated by that argument. So if metaphors don't attribute properties, and if aesthetic descriptions quite generally don't attribute properties, what is their function? His account of aesthetic, of the function of these descriptions, is in terms of imagination. So Scruton argues that one difference between aesthetic experiences and other kinds of experiences is that our imagination is engaged in a certain way. That it's not in certain other kinds of experiences. In particular, he thinks, these aesthetic descriptions express uh, an imaginative experience of seeing one thing as another. So once again, we have this appeal to perceiving as. And he argues for this view in this way. So he says, if metaphors don't attribute properties to objects, then it can't be that the mental state we have to be in in order to accept a metaphor or to use one sincerely is the mental state of belief in what the metaphor has communicated. So it can't be that in order to accept the metaphor, music is sad, we have to believe that the music has a property attributed by the metaphor because, according to the first argument, that metaphor doesn't attribute a property to music. But nevertheless, it's possible to accept or reject a metaphor, to use it sincerely or otherwise. So the question arises, what is it to accept a metaphor or to reject one? in these terms. It can't be that you believe what was communicated. So he thinks that the best candidate for the condition under which we accept a metaphorical aesthetic description is that we must have an experience of perceiving as. So we perceive the music as sad, seems to be the implication. He says that there is a thought here that is not asserted. when we have a perceiving as experience. So, as he puts it, just as an ordinary perception of a dog in front of you involves the concept of a dog applied in a judgment, that, he says, however that's to be characterized, and it's a big difficulty how it is to be characterized, but however we characterize the way in which we're applying the concept of a dog 
when we see a dog in front of us, recognize it as a dog. Perceiving a dog in a picture is like that, except the thought in which the concept of the dog is applied is not asserted. So in the first case, we assert, we have an asserted thought that there's a dog in front of us. In the case of seeing a dog in a picture, we have the same kind of thought, perhaps even the very same thought, but it's not asserted. So it's possible to entertain thoughts without asserting them. It's an important point for his theory. And is a familiar point. You can entertain the thought uh, that it's snowing outside without asserting it or believing it. You can imagine what it would be like for it to be snowing outside, these sorts of things. Scruton often puts this in terms of, well, part of what is involved in these perceptions, he thinks, is a thought component. And in the case of perceiving one thing as another, perceiving a picture as a dog, is that we're not disposed to believe that there is a dog before us when we perceive the dog in the picture. Whereas in an, when an asserted thought is part of our perception, we are disposed to believe that there's a dog in front of us, if that's the thought asserted. So perceiving as has this kind, of, this kind of structure, that unlike in cases of ordinary perception, there are unasserted thoughts involved in it. And this, apart from the kind of intuitive appeal that a lot of people have seen in this view, makes perceiving as a good candidate for the mental state that we're in when we accept or reject a metaphor. So you accept the music is, is sad, that metaphor, only if you perceive the music as sad. You will reject it otherwise if you can't hear the sadness in the music. But that's once again a perception that involves an unasserted thought. And he thinks, moreover, that this fact makes perceiving as an exercise of imagination. So it's a venerable, there's a venerable tradition in philosophy according to which imagination is a component or involved in somehow perception itself. Uh, you find this in Kant. Scruton's aesthetics are very Kantian in a lot of ways. And according to Scruton, the mark of imagination is that it involves entertaining thoughts that we are unprepared to assert, and moreover, which one regards as appropriate to their objects in some way. So to imaginatively entertain the thought that the chairman of the meeting is an elephant, in his example, is to not be prepared to assert it, you certainly wouldn't want to vocalize it, but also to regard it as appropriate to the chairman. This is part of what makes it imaginative. I think he contrasts it here with something merely fanciful, which is also a distinction that's often historically has been drawn. So that's the general theory of aesthetic description and aesthetic experience. Basic thought, we have a perceptual experience, it involves imagination, 
uh, just as, incidentally, creating art involves imagination. Not in the same way, but they're alike in that respect, that they both involve imagination, appreciating art, experiencing art, having an aesthetic experience. These are exercises of imagination. He goes further and makes a more specific claim, however, originally in his paper entitled Understanding Music, and elaborates it further in his book The Aesthetics of Music. And that further claim is about some specific metaphors, specific kinds of metaphors anyway. He claims that in order to hear sounds as music, you have to hear those sounds as moving and as in space in various ways. And remember, once again, these are unasserted thoughts about music. You are not judging that, in fact, the sounds are in space or are moving. You are having an imaginative experience of the sounds as in space and as moving. Uh, now, the argument is not presented in step-by-step -step structure, so this is something of a reconstruction here. Uh, but I think the basic argument for it is to go through each of the elements of our perception of music. Harmony, rhythm, melody, hearing sounds as tones. And to argue about each of those that, in order to hear them, we have to hear sounds as moving or as in a space as in an imaginary space. And the thought seems to be that if you can't hear those components of, of music without hearing them as in space, without hearing sounds as in space or as moving, then you can't hear sounds as music without applying these metaphors in your perception. The thought being, you couldn't hear sounds as music without hearing rhythms, harmonies, themes, phrases, melodies, tones, if they require that you hear sounds as in space or as moving, then the perception of, we can say that the perception of sound as music requires this. So his claim then, first of all, in the case of melodies, is that we need to hear changes of pitch, we need to hear melodies as, in particular, as moving, rising, falling, etc. Sorts of terms in which we describe melodies. In order to hear rhythm, in turn, we have to hear temporal sequences of sounds uh, as acting in various ways. So, for example, we hear sounds joining to and diverging from one another when we hear rhythm. In the case of harmony, you can't hear aggregates of sounds uh, as harmonies without hearing them as having spatial properties and as moving in various ways. So we hear chords as spaced, open, filled, or hollow. We hear parts of a piece as standing in various geometrical relations. So we hear movements of a piece of music as coming together and separating. And so too in hearing various harmonies, uh, we hear attraction and repulsion, tension, relaxation. 
And furthermore, at the most basic level, he says, you can't hear a pitched sound as a tone without hearing them as in space or as moving. And I think this depends on the previous considerations about harmony, melody, and rhythm. Because his claim is that the difference between hearing a mere pitched sound and hearing a tone, or hearing a pitched sound as a tone, is that you hear that sound as having melodic, rhythmic, or harmonic implications. So the thing about hearing a sound as a tone is that it arouses expectations that correspond to melody, rhythm, and harmony. So the claim is, having already shown that you can't hear those things without hearing sounds as in space or as moving, namely melody, rhythm, harmony, you can't hear a sound as a tone without hearing uh, it as in space or as moving. So we can't hear them as having these kinds of melodic, rhythmic, or harmonic implications without hearing them as higher or lower than one another, as containing movement, and so forth. So, it's also very important for his view that to hear sounds in this way is to hear them as having properties that they cannot literally possess. So, otherwise it would be a case of having a perception with an asserted thought. Uh, it would be mere, perhaps, perceptiveness or being observant, not imagination. Uh, and he says, well, it's quite clear that they don't literally possess these properties. One of the reasons he gives is that tones, for example, uh, a tone is the tone it is, partly because of the pitch level that it's at. They're individuated, as the phrase is, in terms of its uninterrupted continuity at a single pitch. And because of that, no tone can literally move from one pitch to another. So a tone is the tone that it is because it's at that pitch. Makes no sense to talk about it moving from one pitch to another. A sound at a different pitch is a different tone, not the same tone in a different location. And he also mentions melodies don't literally move either. Uh, he says a melody is itself a kind of musical movement, not an individual that moves. The upshot of this is that in our most basic apprehension of music, as he puts it, there is a complex system of metaphor. So this is not something that is uh, involved in necessarily in sophisticated, well, it is involved in sophisticated experiences of music as well. But if you're even capable of hearing music, then there is this complex of system of metaphor that's being put into play at the perceptual level, once again. At the linguistic level, he says, it follows that we can't eliminate spatial and movement metaphors from our descriptions of music. So our talk about tones being higher or lower than another, or melodies as moving from one note to another, these are metaphorical. 
he acknowledges at one point that we could use different spatial metaphors or metaphors of mo movement than the ones we actually do and still be describing the experience of music. Uh, so he says that apparently Greek and Chinese descriptions of music call low, the tones that we call high, and vice versa. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, that's what he tells me, uh, tells his reader. And he says any literal substitute for these metaphors would just be a description at best of the experience of sound, not the experience of music. So talking only of changing processes instead of movement uh, would be to describe only the experience of sound. So that's his more specific claim about a specific set of descriptions and experiences uh, of music, in any case. His views on this have been criticized by Malcolm Budd in that paper. That's right, Musical Movement and Aesthetic Metaphors, it's called. And he raises a number of objections, and I'll just mention a few of them to this view. So one concern uh, is that Scruton doesn't make clear what it is for a perception to involve a metaphor. So you remember I mentioned that this is a concern one might have about views of this type. And Bud's contention is that nowhere in his writings does Scruton make it clear what it is for a perception to involve a metaphor. On Bud's view, however, the reference to metaphor is actually not essential to his main claims. The basic claim on Bud's reading of Scruton is just that the perception involves asserted thoughts about sound and unasserted thoughts about space and movement. Whether that's a matter of metaphor being involved in perception or not, he says Scruton can just leave that aside. He doesn't make it clear anyway how that's a case of metaphor being involved in perception. But the basic thought anyway is that the perception involves asserted thoughts about sound, unasserted thoughts about music. So if we focus on that claim, then one question we can ask about it is, well, what is the content of the unasserted thought that you're having when you're experiencing sound as music on this view? What is the thought that you're having? And it's striking, actually, when you read Scruton, uh, he doesn't tend to give an explicit answer to this. He never says, the content of the thought is, the music is sad. The unasserted thought is that. Or in, that's in the case of sadness, but also in the case of movement metaphors. A natural thought, says Bud, is that the unasserted thought is this. This tone is moving from one pitch to another. That's the unasserted thought, so we're not judging that that's actually the case, as Scruton stresses, but we are entertaining the thought, as we always do in imagination, on Scruton's view. 
However, Bud says, for reasons that actually Scruton has identified, this can't be the content of the unasserted thought that we're having in perceiving sound as music. Uh, and that's, as Scruton himself says, because uh, the identity of a tone is tied to its pitch level. And therefore, as Bud puts it, to hear tones as moving from one pitch to another would be to hear something that lacks sense. So it doesn't make sense to talk about a tone moving from one pitch to another, according to Bud, because the identity of a tone is tied to its pitch level. And, says Bud, we cannot hear something that lacks sense. Therefore, we cannot hear tones as moving from one pitch to another. So the content of the unasserted thought, most natural candidate for it, uh, can't be that the tone moves from one pitch to another. And Bud goes through a variety of other candidates uh, for the possible content of the unasserted thought and attempts to rule them out as well. And a final criticism uh, that he raises, or that I'm going to discuss anyway, which Stephen Davies has also raised in connection with Scruton, is that it's not obvious that to talk about movement in connection with, mu with music is actually metaphorical. So according to Davies and Bud, uh, movement is not always applied literally to spatial movement. We can use the term movement to describe change uh, along a non-spatial continuum, such as the pitch continuum, or with respect to some discrete variable, but with no implication of spatial movement in either case. So spatial movement is one kind of literal movement, uh, but not the only kind, according to Davies and Bud. And I think I'll stop there. Thanks very much.